Hi, everyone, and welcome. Do you know what time it is? That's right. It's Wednesday. It's hump day. It's midweek Bible study day. Hi, I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and it's great to be with you once again. Thanks so much for joining me. Today is Wednesday, July 12th. We're continuing in our study of 1 Timothy. Today, we're studying 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 16, and we're going to talk about leaders in the church and truths of our faith. But before we get to it, let's pray. Gracious God and Father, Lord, thank you so much for the amazing privilege we have to study your word. And thank you for all that have come to join today. Bless them, Father, and may we be a blessing to you as we gather together and study. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Turn with me in your Bible or Bible apps to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and let's look at verses 1 to 16 and find out what the Apostle Paul has to say. This is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be a church leader, he desires an honorable position. So a church leader must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control, live wisely, and have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker or be violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not love money. He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? A church leader must not be a new believer because he might become proud and the devil will cause him to fall. Also, people outside the church must speak well of him so that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons must be well respected and have integrity. They must not be heavy drinkers or dishonest with money. They must be committed to the mystery of the faith now revealed and must live with a clear conscience. Before they are appointed as deacons, let them be closely examined. If they pass the test, then let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives must be respected and not slander others. They must exercise self-control and be faithful in everything they do. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and he must manage his children and household well. Those who do well as deacons will be rewarded with respect from others and will have increased confidence in their faith in Christ Jesus. I am writing these things to you now, even though I hope to be with you soon, so that if I am delayed, you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. This is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in a human body and vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels and announced to the nations. He was believed in throughout the world and taken into heaven in glory. Now let's look at verses 1 to 7 as Paul talks about qualifications for elders in the church. Verses 1 to 7, starting with verse 1. Verse 1 again reads, This is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be a church leader, he desires an honorable position. Our first question today is this. Paul begins this chapter with a saying about church leadership. What does it mean? In this verse, Paul begins by stating that his words are trustworthy, a formula he used in the pastoral epistles. He also uses this term in 1 Timothy 1.15, chapter 4, verse 9, as well as 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, and Titus chapter 3, verse 8. Each time the phrase emphasizes a particular point or quote, Paul wants Timothy or Titus to remember. Next, Paul talks about someone who desires to be a church leader. In the King James Version, this position is called a bishop. In other translations, it's called an overseer, which translates to the position of elder. 
we can make several observations here. First, in this context, someone does not mean just any person. Though this particular word is in the neuter or genderless form, the following verses specify that only men could serve as elders. All of the following pronouns in this section are specifically male, with qualifications including the husband of one wife and managing his own household. Second, the focus is on the position more than the person. An overseer or elder is a position of top leadership in the church. Those who desire it desire a good thing. Two Greek words for aspire and desire are used here. The first is oregetai, emphasizing an internal or private desire. The other is epithmiai, emphasizing an external or overt desire. This task was seen as honorable. Next is verse 2. It reads, So a church leader must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control, live wisely, and have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must be able to teach. The question is, in this verse, Paul lists seven qualifications for an elder. What are they, and why would they be important? First, Paul says an elder must be a man whose life is above reproach. This means the man must not have a flaw in his conduct that would be grounds for any kind of accusation. He must be blameless, in other words. The term serves as a general opening summary of character. A leader within the church should have a good reputation among the believers. Leadership sets the tone. What follows are the building blocks of that reputation. The second qualification is the elder must be faithful to his wife. There are some, though, who say this verse shows that the elder should be married. This might fit because the false teachers forbade marriage, chapter 4, verse 3. But both Timothy and Paul were not married at the time these words were written. So if Paul taught that an elder must be married, he would be unable to lead and would be contradicting his very instructions in chapter 5, verse 14, also in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 25 to 33. The phrase given here is mias genaitos andra, which means literally one woman man. This comment from Paul does not imply anything in particular about past divorce, widowers, or those who are single. The point is that whether being celibate and single or married, the elder must demonstrate a faithful relationship with his wife. The third qualification is the elder must exercise self-control. This is another way to say the leader ought to possess sound and balanced judgment or even common sense. Each of these qualities may be required for leaders, but they ought to be the goal of all believers. The fourth qualification here is he must live wisely. This means his life should be marked by moderation, limits, no extremes or excessives, with an absence of extravagance. We might use the term balance to indicate that this leader possesses the appropriate emphasis on each of the priorities in his life. The fifth qualification is he must have a good reputation. This overlaps the first qualification of being above reproach. Having a good reputation refers to basic social graces, ordinary dignified behavior. The Greek word is derived from cosmos, which means the world or universe, and it pictures a person who lives in harmony with the way God created the world to function. The sixth qualification is the elder must enjoy having guests in his home. Hospitality was widely emphasized in Middle Eastern cultures and in the Old Testament. Believers are commanded to be hospitable. Hebrews 5.10, Hebrews 13.2, 1 Peter 4.9, and 3 John 5. So a leader should also enjoy having guests in his home. The seventh qualification is the elder must be able to teach. 
One of the most important tasks of any church leader is to teach the scriptures to those in the congregation. The leader must understand and be able to communicate the profound truths of scripture as well as deal with those false teachers who mishandle them. Verse 3 says, He must not be a heavy drinker or be violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not love money. Here's the question. In this verse, Paul continued to list five more qualifications for elders. What are they once again, and what do they mean? First, an elder must not be a heavy drinker. The other word you might see in your translations is drunkenness or a drunkard. This should be obvious for a number of reasons. Drinking wine was common among Jews and Gentiles, especially before refrigeration existed. It should be noted that Paul does not prohibit the drinking of all wine or all alcohol, but specifically rules out drunkenness. Those prone to this kind of addiction are considered disqualified from being an elder. The second qualification in this verse is that the elder must not be violent. In other words, he cannot be argumentative or quarrelsome or temperamental. Abuse may take many forms, verbal, physical, sexual, even spiritual, but it rises from a deep disrespect for others. Mental illness may also be involved. This kind of person tends to be defensive, insecure, and insensitive. A person with a history of verbal battles may find it difficult to lead effectively. The third and fourth qualifications are he must be gentle, not quarrelsome. The Greek term, epaiiki, implies one who is patient and fair-minded. Paul also connects this to being not quarrelsome, echoing his comments on praying without quarreling in chapter 2. The fifth qualification is that he not love money. Leaders must have a proper attitude for handling finances in the church. This affects the ethical use of church funds and the administration of proper programs for raising money. Many would-be leaders combine love of money with a quarrelsome nature and end up quarreling in the church over money matters. That kind of a person should not be selected to lead. Next up, verses 4 and 5. They say, He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? Here's our question. In these verses, Paul says that the qualifications for church leadership hinge on the man's ability to do what and why is that important. The leader's qualifications hinge upon his ability to manage his own household. It's not absolutely required that an elder be married or have children, but if he does, he must manage his own family well. The word manage means compassionate leading and directing, not stern, cruel, or authoritative. This type of family leadership reflects the parallel between the church and the home, as we see in Ephesians 5, verse 28 through chapter 6, verse 9. It makes sense that Paul would use this requirement for no one could run a household effectively without love and firmness, mercy, and guidelines. The ability to handle the household forms a training ground for a man's ability to handle the family of God in the church. The same love, compassion, firmness, and mercy are needed for both duties. Next up is verse 6. A church leader must not be a new believer because he might become proud and the devil will cause him to fall. The question is, this verse gives one additional qualification to those who would be elders. What is it? The elder must not be a new believer. New believers are not prepared to lead other believers. This involves more than just their spiritual knowledge. It also speaks to their spiritual maturity. As Paul warns, giving too much authority too early can result in arrogance. This phrase indicates a believer who is too quickly placed into the position of leadership and they can become proud and fall into sin. Christians are not perfect and often continue to struggle with sinful habits after coming to faith in Christ. 
Even the most mature believers wrestle with temptation. Even Jesus faced Satan's temptations, though he never sinned. More mature believers are better equipped to teach and equip members in the church. They're also more experienced in dealing with the temptations and stresses of Christian life. And they are more aware of their own shortcomings, so they're less likely to become arrogant. For these reasons, a person who is new in the faith should not be given spiritual authority over others. Next up, verse 7, it says, Also, people outside the church must speak well of him that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. Here's the question. This is the third time Paul speaks to an elder's reputation, but this time it's not within the church. Where is it that Paul is speaking of, and why? It's important for a leader to have a good reputation with people outside the church, that is, non-believers in the community. Church leaders being the most visible people in the church to the secular world would do well to maintain the highest standards and the best reputations. Church leaders who follow Paul's advice keep their church from facing unnecessary abuse. At the end of this verse, this idea of the devil's trap is that of an animal trap. Just as animals could be lured to a certain spot and caught by an unseen danger, a church leader with a bad reputation in the community could be disgraced. This is something Paul considered a trap for church leaders and likely also for the local church. Such a fall damages the reputation of the local church as well as the faith that they represent. Ultimately, when Christian leaders have a bad reputation, it keeps non-believers from coming to Christ. Now let's take a look at verses 8 to 13 as Paul talks about qualifications for deacons in the church. Starting with verse 8. In the same way, deacons must be well respected and have integrity. They must not be heavy drinkers or dishonest with money. Here's the question. What is a deacon and what qualifications does Paul say they need to have? The root word used for deacon in this passage is diakonos. It literally means a servant. This position was begun by the apostles in the Jerusalem church. You can read about that in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. And it was created to care for the physical needs of the congregation. Deacons were leaders in the church, and their qualifications resemble those of the duties of the elders, yet their roles were probably somewhat different as they carried out some of the more practical tasks of running and maintaining the church. Paul's explanation emphasized the point that the name or title was to be given to someone who was already living out these character qualities. While Paul did not mention teaching requirements for deacons, their lives would have still been models of Christian discipleship. Deacons, as recognized leaders in the church, also had a high profile, so they were required to be respected. This is not the same term for respectability applied to the elders. Here the term can mean serious or honorable. Deacons were to take their responsibilities seriously and conscientiously. They should be men of dignity. They should have integrity, referring to honesty without hypocrisy. Second, they must have integrity. They are not to be double-tongued or literally speaking double. The idea seems to be one of a hypocrite or liar. It can also refer to those who put on a different face for different groups of people, showing a deceptive or dishonest streak. A man known for this practice was unfit for the role of deacon. Third, a deacon was not to be a heavy drinker. As with elders in verse 3, drunkenness was not fitting for a church leader. Note again that Paul does not take this opportunity to condemn all alcohol consumption. Drinking alcohol was permitted and sometimes even encouraged. Drunkenness, however, is clearly a sin, and those prone to that addiction are not suitable for the role of deacon. Lastly, like elders, deacons can't be greedy. Both groups of leaders steward the resources of the church and must be able to operate free from the love of money. Next, verse 9. They must be committed to the mystery of the faith now revealed and must live with a clear conscience. Here's the question. 
In addition to the character qualifications given in the previous verse, what else must a deacon be committed to? A deacon must have spiritual depth. In other words, be committed to the truths of the Christian faith. In Acts 6, seven men were chosen to help the apostles in the early church, and they were well-respected and full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. While Luke never called Stephen and his companions deacons, they have traditionally been held up as early models of the service orientation of that role. They were men whose outward actions demonstrated that the gospel had taken deep root in their lives. Deacons must not only know God's truth, they must be committed to it, and they must live it, which will result in a clear conscience. Their lifestyles must also be consistent with their beliefs. Next up, verse 10. Before they were appointed as deacons, let them be closely examined. If they pass the test, then let them serve as deacons. The question is, what does Paul mean that before deacons are appointed, they should be tested? I think this is not a reference to formal testing, as in a paper test, but rather observation by those who appoint deacons. The candidate will have shown the required moral characteristics and approved doctrine consistent with ordinary activities of church membership. A person who has proven their character and ability over time can then serve as a deacon. Testing deacons is still needed today as well. They should not be appointed without consideration of their doctrine and their Christian life. Verse 11 reads, in the same way, their wives must be respected and not slander others. They must exercise self-control and be faithful in everything they do. Here's our question. In this verse, Paul appears to be speaking about deacons' wives and the attributes they should have. What are those attributes and why are they important? Let me say that this sometimes still gives rise to a lot of controversy. The phrase, their wives, is a literal rendering. Yet the same Greek word, gyne, also means women, which could be translated as their women or wives. The controversy consists over whether this reference is to the wives of deacons or whether this is actually a third group referring to female deacons. Further adding to the controversy is Romans 16 verse 1, in which some Bible translations call Phoebe a deacon. Based on the context of this passage in verse 11, I believe it's all but certain that Paul's references here are to the wives of potential deacons. The wives of a potential deacon must be respected and must not slander others. Respected is similar to respect as used with elders in verse 4. Slander as used here refers to all forms of gossip, backbiting, and other malicious talk. Exercising self-control is the same idea mentioned in verse 2 in reference to the elders. And faithful in everything they do is a general summary regarding how a woman or wife was to function in the church. The Bible places great importance on the influence spouses can have on each other. So it makes sense that men need spouses whose spiritual lives will support their efforts to properly serve or lead in the church. Next up, verse 12 reads, A deacon must be faithful to his wife, and he must manage his children and household well. Our question is, in this verse, Paul returns to the qualifications of prospective deacons. What does he say? Like elders, deacons are to be known for faithfulness in their marriage. The phrase given here once again is mias gynecos andra, which literally means a one-woman man. This is the same phrasing used back in verse 2, as I said. Like elders, deacons are to also demonstrate proper management of their children and household. This would have included the wife, children, extended family in the home, and any servants back then. First century households in Ephesus sometimes consisted of several people, and the typical family of this era had many more children than in modern Western societies. 
The idea was that a man must be able to lead his own family well if he was to be successful leading the larger family of a church congregation. Though deacons are not required to be able to teach, as are the elders, they are required to have a solid family reputation. In a nutshell, the emphasis here is on one's current family status being of high character among the church and the community. Next up, verse 13, it says, Those who do well as deacons will be rewarded with respect from others and will have increased confidence in their faith in Christ Jesus. Here's our question. This verse partly explains why the qualifications for deacons are so high. Can you explain? There are spiritual rewards in heaven for those who serve faithfully in this role. Faithful deacons are to be respected for their service and recognized for their work. A deacon's role is not primarily administrative, but spiritual. Serving well leads to great spiritual reward. This is true both for the individual and the church as well. When a congregation has faithful deacons and elders, the church will thrive. Also, serving well gives added confidence in the faith. This closely resembles Hebrews 10.35, which teaches, So do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you. Confidence is considered a reward to those who serve Christ well. The more confident in faith one becomes, the more effectively and powerfully they can spread the gospel message. Now Paul moves on to the final three verses of our text today, verses 14 to 16, and he talks about the truths of our faith. So let's find out more. First up, let's look at verses 14 and 15 together. I am writing these things to you now, even though I hope to be with you soon, so that if I am delayed, you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. This is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Here's our question. What is Paul's aim in these verses? Again, in opposition to the false teachers who were full of false beliefs, Paul aimed at truthful behavior within the church. Actions speak louder than words, and in harmony they create an attractive song. Paul also knew that if he got the Ephesian Christians behaving as God wanted them to live, the noise of the false teachers would be drowned out. But then that makes another question pop up. What is the household of God, Paul mentions in verse 15? The household of God is the church of the living God. This church does not refer to any particular physical building. Rather, it's a collection of all believers in Ephesus and by extension across the world. These believers, each serving and worshiping in their individual churches, are the pillar and support of God's truth. And now our last verse for today, verse 16. It reads, Without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in a human body and vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels and announced to the nations. He was believed in throughout the world and taken to heaven in glory. Our last question today says this. Many see this verse as the central statement in the letter of 1 Timothy. And there are six parts to this verse. What are they and what do they mean? The final verse of this section and chapter introduces a doxology, if you will, a kind of short hymn or praise. These poetic words may have already existed as a short hymn when Paul recorded them, or they may have just been created by him specifically for this letter. In either case, the structure points toward a creed or a hymn type usage of these words. Many see this verse as the central statement of the letter, as I said. The six parts all begin with a definite article and depict a specific part of Christ's life, though there is some debate regarding exactly how it is to be divided. One helpful arrangement would be this. Do you see where it says, he was revealed in human form? This is talking about Christ's incarnation, when he came from heaven 
and became a human. You see where it says he was vindicated by the Spirit? This speaks of Christ's resurrection. Next, he was seen by angels. This speaks of Christ's appearances. Next, Paul says he was announced to the nations. In other words, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ brought to the world. Next, he was believed in throughout the world. This is talking about Christ's followers. And lastly, he was taken to heaven in glory. This is Christ's ascension. So the six parts that you see here, this mystery that Paul talks about, it talks about Christ's incarnation, his resurrection, his appearances, the gospel, his followers, and his ascension. That's incredible, isn't it? Well, folks, that brings us to the end of today's study of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Once again, this has certainly been a deep and challenging journey, but by the grace of God, we finish strong, and to God be the glory for it. Next time, we're going to study 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through chapter 5, verse 2, and we're going to talk about warnings against false teachers and what it is to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Thanks again for taking time to join me. It is always my honor to be with you. I pray a blessing over you and your families. I hope you have a great rest of your day and week, and I'll see you right back here next time. Until then, God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.